This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dave O'Brien from City University, London. This time we'll be discussing narrative, identity, and the map of cultural policy once upon a time in a globalised world, which is by Constance Devereaux uh, and Martin Griffin. The book uh, was out in 2013 and is a very interesting take on cultural policy, questions of public policy, and the idea of stories and narratives. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking with Constance Devereaux, uh, who has written a book with Martin Griffin called Narrative, Identity and the Map of Cultural Policy, Once Upon a Time in a Globalized World. Uh, Constance is currently at Colorado State University, uh, and Martin is at the University of Tennessee, which are both uh, in the USA. So uh, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Um, I think if we could kick off by, uh, if you could say a little bit about um, your academic background um, and I guess sort of what, what brought you to write uh, this book? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate being able to talk about my, my new book. Uh, as far as my own background is concerned, I um, am very interdisciplinary. Mm. Um, my PhD is in philosophy and political science. Uh, I really study both areas and Really, uh, if I had designed it for the field that I'm in now, I I don't think I could have done better. Um, But my idea was that I needed to be well-versed in both of those areas, really fluent in talking about philosophy, fluent in talking about political science, uh, so that I was an insider on both. Mm. And my aim was to uh, be critical about the social sciences, uh, so I think that's what I do now, uh, but specifically in the area of arts management and cultural policy. Interesting. Yeah. And, and actually that, that comes through um, quite obviously in the book, actually, um, the way that um, it ranges over quite quite a remarkable number of disciplines, actually. You know, there are sort of uh, literary studies, film studies, cultural policy, uh, broader cultural studies, political science, there's philosophy. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite quite a remarkable uh, sort of collection of disciplines. So uh, could you tell me a bit about how the book sort of came about? Because obviously um, it's co-authored, as I say, with, with Martin Griffin. So had you two worked together for a long time before or uh, was it just this one project? We've actually known each other for a while. Martin is an Americanist, uh, originally from Ireland. Um, so I always wonder what was so fascinating about uh, American literature to yep. him. But somehow he ended up in the United States. And we met at Claremont Graduate University. After I graduated um, from there, I uh, was offered a position as a visiting scholar. And um, he was at a nearby university um, teaching uh, at the same t- teaching in, in American literature. But we had a mutual acquaintance in the cultural studies department who kept saying to each of us individually, oh, there's this person you have to meet. And both of us were saying, yeah, 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 right. Uh, Eventually we met and we just clicked about uh, our interests. And funnily enough, we have mutual interests, but we disagree a lot about the things that we're interested in. Uh, But nonetheless, it, it, it seemed to have clicked. And we talked in very general terms about working together at some point. Uh, and then um, we had had some conversations about the use of 
the words globalization and transnationalism and found that we both were similar in thinking that there was kind of a problem, uh, uh, particularly in fields like cultural studies and then uh, arts policy, arts management, in that um, globalization always seemed to be a dirty word because it meant, you know, the, the dark shadow, as we mentioned in the book, the dark mm. shadow that eats up everything else. Uh, and closely associated with the idea of Americanization of the yeah. rest of the world, yeah. particularly culturally. So we found that people were using the word transnational um, in a very good way, you know, that we all wanted to be transnational. None of us wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, have, uh, well, and again, here we get into terms because global, to be global seems to be okay, but globalization is bad. Yeah, yeah. So we we wrestled with this and i think his background of course in literature makes it a natural for him and um i i have always been interested in philosophy of language and so um we came together finally on a project um that was called uh international uh transnational global what's in a word and we presented, or I present. we wrote the article together, but I presented it at the International uh, Conference on Cultural Policy Research in Vienna. Um, I think that was in 2008, something like that. And it seemed to hit a nerve with people, I mean, a, a good nerve, because it was well-received. And we were approached by Eurozine, which is an online yeah. publication. Uh, and... Uh, they wanted to publish uh, the article and then it was translated into Lithuanian of all things um, because the Lithuanian journal really liked it. And the article has done well. It's been cited a lot and people contact me about it. So uh, we were really pleased with that. And then um, out of the blue, I got an email from Ashgate um, asking if I could suggest some ideas for uh, books in cultural policy. And I ran four different ideas about uh, by them. Um, and, you know, I'm gratified that they, they did like all of the ideas, but the one they found most compelling was this one on transnationalism and uh, globalization. So uh, I contacted Martin and I said, hey, do you want to write a book? <laughs> It, it seems that somebody is actually interested, so that's one step behind us. So we put together a proposal, and um, an interesting thing about it, after the first proposal, we got good reviews, but it seemed one reviewer who I think was in the area of, um, they call it intercultural management, so it's it's, it's from the management field, and it's how to manage in um, intercultural situations. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I noticed that there is confusion when, when you say cultural management. First of all, few people know what that is outside of a very limited field. Um, they don't think it has anything to do with the arts, and I think that's why we go back and forth between arts management and cultural management as terms. Uh, but anyway, somebody who seemed not to know very much about the field was extremely critical of it. Oh, and so we, yeah, so we, so we were very doubtful that it was going to go forward. Um, and then I pointed out to the editor that we were working with that maybe that was the case. That's that, you know, maybe this person didn't know much about it. So she just encouraged us to, um, maybe firm up the proposal a little bit and resubmit it. And then we did get um, good reviews uh, the next uh, the next time. And then, you know, we were set to go. And it was interesting to go through the process that way because we didn't submit a proposal cold. Um, we I was approached. And so it meant a little bit working backwards. And I think it allowed us to really think things through differently because we were offered the contract and then we had to deliver. And so we had to really think about, oh my gosh, you know, okay, so what is this really going to be about and how do we craft this? Yeah. Um, I think actually that comes through in um, 
some of the intellectual concerns in the book, actually, because you mentioned those two core words, globalization and transnationalism. And the book, um, I suppose one way to approach them would be to, you know, describe what they are and kind of talk about particular examples. But almost the book does something very different because it's got this sort of focus on um, on narrative as the sort of underlying theme um, in the text. And, and, and how did that, that emerge between the two of you? Well, I think really in we had very uh, like myriad ideas about the approach. We wanted transnationalism, transnationalism and globalization to be a very very core. But as we kind of laid it out and and thought about it and argued, let me tell you, times <laughs> about uh, like what the heck. Um, uh, we both had this interest in narrative, and I think that it really came again from the concern with language and how language is used. And if there's a theme through my work, I don't know if other people would identify it, but for myself, the theme in all of my work is the critique of language as it's used in policy mm. and how this may lead us to problems um, I had a, a brilliant mentor at one time um, in uh, when I was in in graduate school actually um, an Australian philosopher Michael Scriven who was who was hired at one time by the Air Force uh, nice. to help with he, he many people call uh, Michael the uh, the father of evaluation theory Um and so I just always thought it was cool, you know, the Air Force, uh, the U.S. Air Force hiring a philosopher. You know, that's just out not cool. <laughs> so uh, he, his one thing, um, he was a very, um, uh, you know, uh, a very kind man, but had such a commanding presence. Mm. And if you said something kind of stupid, he would shake his finger at you and say, no, no, sloppy thinking. <laughs> And that was intimidating, let me tell you. I can and I think it had such an influence that when I look at what I call sloppy language mm. in policy, I think, okay, here's something that needs to be worked on. Do, so, do you find yourself sort of mentally wagging a finger at it and saying, no, no? Uh, oh, yes. And I, and I actually, I, I, you know, I don't have the presence that Michael <laughs> has, but I, I do tell my students sloppy thinking sometimes. <laughs> But um, but to go back to the, the narrative framework, I, I think that we just began to emerge as we talked about these words, that that's what was wrong, that people were intending these two words to tell entirely different stories when they used them, you know, in, in policy and in cultural yeah. policy. Yeah. And it, it, it was very clear. And informally we had raised this with people uh, to see what their reaction was. And of course that first article was questioning, are these different words? Are they just the same word? And we just kind of wink at each other that we're using them in a different way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that, that was you know, that we were aware of all of that as an issue. And then narrative seemed, um, it really kind of emerged as sort of a natural way to go about it. Hmm. And it, I suppose it, it's interesting you say a sort of a, a natural way to go about it because it, it it's actually a very challenging um, approach. So, for example, I mean, we might sort of move around the various chapters, but one of the things that comes out uh, really clearly is the idea that narrative is absolutely essential to understanding uh, the development of public policy. Um, in, in the case of the sort of um, broader themes of the book, uh, public policy towards culture widely uh, defined and understood. And this is, uh, I guess, in contrast to um, frameworks of public policy that might maybe depend on um, rational choice or economics, um, which are quite dominant, uh, I know, in the United States and have become very influential uh, in the UK as well. So it's interesting how um, how different um, public policy is seen through, through the lens of narrative. And um, was that something you're aiming to do to kind of um, overturn or, or challenge uh, dominant ways of thinking about policymaking? I think to deeply question them as um, the sole way to go about it. Uh, I, I mean, uh, we, we take 
some pains in in the um, book to say that we're we're not saying that we should just jettison all mm. other methods. Yeah. Um, my my own view, and this is probably from interdisciplinary training, is that we shouldn't throw away any method if it's useful. Um, you know, I mean, e- even Newtonian physics can explain things well. Um, it just doesn't explain a lot of other things that need to be explained. So I'm not one to want to throw things away if they have a use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And I am impatient with um, the type of science, uh, social science or hard science, that claims that, you know, everything can be just... Uh, you know, plainly known, um, uh, rationally known. Uh, and I think because in, in my background, again, very, very interdisciplinary and I was kind of all over the place. Uh, but, um, but aesthetics was an area that I studied and aesthetic knowing and the people who wrote, written about aesthetic knowing, um, doesn't even talk about epistemology. It's more, you know, Rorty calls it edification, um, and so there, it recognizes there, there are things that we know if we want to use that term, since we are limited in the number of terms that we have to talk about it, but th- there are things that we know and we seem to know them, um, without having some kind of empirical evidence, yeah. uh, or, or we don't appeal to empir- empirical evidence for reassurance on our knowledge and that can be useful. It works in many ways in our lives. So it's, it was really uh, about that. And, uh, and of course, the, the book does go through and talk about problems with, um, you know, empirical methods um, and traditional, you know, social science, um, pointing out that there are a lot of things left out. And, and, and to, you know, talking about how, how some of the parts of the book came out, I think that... Um, we started to think about, like, you know, jokes. How do jokes work? And how could you test that a joke works in some empirical way other than that people laugh at it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, of course, we couldn't even determine, are they really laughing because the joke is funny? Or are they laughing because the joke is so dumb? Are they laughing because other people are laughing? You know, it's endless when you start to question what empirical um, methods really can't measure. Yeah, and, and I think this comes up in, in a couple of ways in the book. I mean, for, for example, in Chapter 5, there's that sense of uh, of not just the kind of uh, difficulty of, of measuring things, but also the question of who has the authority or who has the power um, to frame how particular stories will, uh, will, will dominate or, or some stories um, won't. Um, and I think that was particularly useful when thinking about um, how it is we end up with the policies about culture that we that we have. Yeah, uh, that that was originally a much longer and really complex chapter that I I that primarily I had written uh, and then just trashed it. But it was way too philosophical. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it, it had started out talking about. Um, well, uh, I mentioned in the book that I, I have a, uh, a, in the introduction that, um, that I'm a creative writer. And approaching something as a creative writer is very different than, obviously, when you're writing something for, you know, an academic uh, piece yeah. of writing. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, not, we make the point that, nonetheless, fictional narratives can have as much power as, you know, true narratives. Um but uh, the idea was about author- authorial control. You know, what's happening with the author and the difference between the author and the narrator, which is very difficult for a lot of people to appreciate. And, um, you know, how characters, um, um, uh, you know, have agency when actually it's the author who has the agency for the characters. So it was very complex. And I, as I said, I eventually just threw it out. But it was this recognition that, you know, if you're the one framing it, you have an awful lot of control over how people are going to think about it. And, and there's a lot of 
uh, you know, many, many other people before me have worked on the idea of framing. Uh, but um, we were really trying to craft it really into this notion of how we think about cultural policy. And transnationalism and globalization are ideal for looking at that because those two words really frame things in very different ways. Yeah, on, on the one hand, you have a sort of a framing um, that is, um, I guess, um, sees um, the global as a threat, as you've said, as a kind of an example of potentially sort of cultural imperialism. And then on the other hand, you have a framing that kind of celebrates diversity um, and celebrates the kind of crossing over or bringing um, together of, of particular uh, different cultures. Uh, and actually, I was going to ask you about this later, but we might pick up on it on it now. You, you touch on this in the uh, in the final chapter, the way that um, I guess there are sort of um, particular ways of doing cultural policy um, that produce sort of. Um, ethnically diverse uh, and sort of open societies and then there are potentially ways of, of doing cultural policy that kind of um, reject or, or close down these possibilities um, and I, I wonder if you could sort of uh, talk us through a little bit uh, that chapter because um, that seems to be one of the moments where the, uh, the tension between globalisation and transnationalism plays out in the book well, and, and let me mention something that it, it's seemingly a little bit off topic, but um, uh, when we say cultural policy, that's that's t a totally acceptable term for most people. They don't have a problem with it. But um, uh, cultural management, um, which is the, the managing of cultural organizations, is a term that um, give some people shivers up and down the spine. So I, I think it's it's a good way to enter into talking about uh, that um, that chapter five. Uh, when I created the arts and cultural management program at Claremont Graduate University, many people rejected cultural management as part of the name of the degree because they thought that it was, you know, uh, somehow dictating to people what their culture should be. Oh, okay. um, that's interesting. Actually, on, yeah. on, the, on the sort of, yeah, the level of the institution saying we don't want to be prescriptive. Right, right. And um, uh, so I, I think that kind of demonstrates uh, demonstrate some of, you know, the problem. Um, chapter five was um, a chapter called Identity Borders and Narrative Ironies. Mm. And... Um, I, I had taken the lead in this chapter, um, and my um, I think we always felt that identity identity is one of those issues in cultural policy that I think is like this the central issue. It's the um, it's maybe maybe the only issue in cultural policy. Um, by the way, that's a train in the background. Right. So, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, <laughs> Um, I'm living here in the West, so we have trains going through all the time. Uh, in some ways, I think identity is really the only issue, and then everything else is a sub-issue of identity. Um, because in cultural policy, we're, we're strongly concerned with how culture forms identities, um, you know, um, how identities and groups form their cultures, um, what rules there are that apply to it that... Uh, compromise people's identity. Um, so, um, in in terms of globalization, of course, that's that you know that's the fear is that identities would be compromised or erased, and transnationalism seems to open it up and allow for be, people to be more fluid and select their identities or go to another another country and not have their identity challenged. Um, so that that was something that was always planned to be part of it. Um, and so uh, it is kind of a wide-ranging chapter, uh, as I guess most of them are. Mm. Uh, but, that, but the idea was really to show how... Um, how identity just problematizes um, all, all of the issues that we're trying to wrestle with um, as uh, people who, cultural policy researchers, cultural policy analysts. Now, the, the core of the book, I, I think, um, over and above the sort of um, theoretical work you do, is, is the third chapter where you kind of concentrate on these, these case studies, um, 
these sort of four, I, I guess, empirical case studies, um, and then a, a really, really interesting um, attempt at doing a sort of uh, a fictional case study as well. And so you talk about uh, Berlin as a site for the kind of conflict uh, between global powers, uh, the birth or um, some of the problems associated with um, organizing a federal arts agency in the USA, um, the sort of uh, destruction of a UNESCO World Heritage Site by the Taliban, um, and um, some work in Arizona with, with the, the Hopi tribe. Um, and then this fictional account of, I guess, a sort of uh, question about cultural protectionism and, and authenticity over, over wine. Um, which actually in the introduction was something that really intrigued me um, because you, you don't tend to see a lot of sort of fictional accounts blended uh, with, with the factual. Um, and I know you mentioned, uh, as we were talking earlier, that this was one of the most collaborative chapters as you um, and uh, your co-author sort of brought together uh, your different expertise. Um, so I wonder if you could give us a, a flavor of how those case studies uh, interact b- b- between the two of you. Sure. Um, and, and basically, we just divided them. Uh, uh, we came to the table with several ideas and then um, selected the four. And, um, you know, so the two that Martin brought, um, the two that we chose of Martin's, he took the lead on writing those and I took the lead on writing the, the two that we selected of mine. Um, and we were looking for for case studies that really had an underlying story where the story of the events um, took front and center in the decision-making process and the policy decisions um, in various ways. And um, uh, two are looking at um, um, sort of the the play of, um, you know, of story and two are about conflicts in stories where the story that one group is telling might conflict with the story that another group is telling. I have to say that as a methodology, it, it requires some um, subtlety nuance on the part of the analyst. You know, this is not as straightforward as doing your normal cultural, cultural uh, uh, policy science. Um, and that can be an objection that some people have. Um, so we're conscious that there, there may be some questions about how applicable this is. Um, and I, I do think that we explained it in the book, but, but if you have, you know, if I'm being, uh, if it seems too nuanced when I'm explaining it, please interrupt me. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, the, the two that I took the lead on were the Hopi in Arizona and, mm-hmm. um, the development of the national endowment in, uh, for the arts in the United States, where I thought that there were some really strong story elements. In the case of the National Endowment, the NEA, um, the issue here was how it got passed into legislation, how it became created at the time it was created. Uh, Because uh, when when people came to the United States, um, well, it wasn't the United States, when people came to this continent, um, certainly they came from places where um, where there was artistic expression. And, of course, the Native people uh, here on this continent were also interested in aesthetic and creative expression. Uh, but it there seems to have been a period of time where people felt that it disappeared. Um, and so by the time that um, the National Endowment for the Arts was created in 1965, that's uh, mid-20th century, that was a long time since the founding of the United States, Uh, whereas, of course, there were things uh, formally in place in other countries much, much longer in history. Hmm. So, Yeah, uh, and and the European sort of, I guess, tradition of the state being much more interventionist um, in kind of cultural questions as well. Right, right. Um, it's funny that we never think of it as interventionist when we look at Europe. I, I, I don't think that's the first thing that comes to our mind. We think about support for the arts rather than intervening in the arts. Um, although, of course, that I mean that has been a discussion in the United States. Um, and at the time of the NEA, creating the NEA, people were afraid of that. But oh, yeah, it's, very, very just, much so, very much so. 
but um, but the interesting thing about creating the NEA was that there were two stories in play at the time that that many people felt helped uh, pass the legislation uh, because on the surface it did it didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. Um, one was this story about how the arts were going to save humanity, uh, Americans included, uh, and uh, and. Uh, what were we being saved from? Well, it was during the Cold War. And so there were those communists and Nazis who were suppressing the arts and, yeah. um, you know, propaganda and all that. And um, particular fears about fascist society and its associations with, um, you know, uh, mechanization of the world, machines. Um, uh, and... Right at that time, uh, you know, during the the fifties and sixties, um, there was a lot of literature films um, that concentrated on humanity being taken over by, you know, whether it be by machines gone mad, you know, robots, you know, aliens, um, zombies. I mean, you name it. There, we were going to be taken over by something, and we were going to lose our humanity. Mm. So oh, those fears. I'm sorry. Well, it, it, it's interesting because this plays out, you know, it, it, in a direct link to to, to politics um, for these cultural expressions where, you know, uh, as you kind of touched on, you've got the Cold War context and, and that relationship between these kind of uh, these senses of, of fear um, of, um, you know, totalitarian regimes and how this kind of manifests itself in these um, cultural expressions. Right, right. So uh, I think the you know those kinds of issues perhaps were worldwide, but in mm. the United States it was very, very strong. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. And and many authors of of works such as I Robot or um, um, oh I forget the title right now of the where some alien pods take over the human race. Uh, oh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the authors, you know, uh, say that, you know, in, in many ways they were thinking about the Cold War mm. and the takeover, you know, uh, and par in particular from an American context, the takeover of our individuality. Yes. Right. So um, the arts were positioned as the antidote to that because the arts were about individual expression, of course, especially at that time, right? And um, and then it was also evoking, evoking this kind of romantic notion, you know, uh, from earlier centuries that the arts put us in touch with the divine. Mm. Uh, they elevated human beings above their lowly station. So, to, you know, totally romantic notions. Uh, but those were evoked as well. And so, again, the arts were positioned as, well, this is what would save humanities, humanity and Americans from these threats. Uh, and, and those kinds of evocations you see in the language that was used in trying to get um, the, the legislation passed. The other narrative which supplemented it uh, and, and actually, I think it had just as much strength, but it's a kind of different narrative. But both of these were in play. And this is the narrative of American greatness mm. that really started um, in, the, in the 19th century. I mean, you actually see roots of it much earlier. Um, but And there, there are some nuances in this. One has to do with nationalism, and, and this started actually from the very early republic. How do we differentiate ourselves from, um, from uh, England, first of all, but also France? And how do we differentiate ourselves from Europe? Because we're going to become our own nation. And one of the ways that we could distinguish ourselves was in attitudes about the arts. Okay? So um, there was a rejection of what... European art stood for, which was decadence and aristocracy and, you know, etc. Well, along about the 19th century, people are starting to tell the story um, that Americans are not 
interested in the arts. And uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, you know, his, his saying about Americans prefer the useful to the beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we seem to have embraced that notion, although, you know, there was art everywhere and people participating in creative expression. Um, and largely, I mean, art, small a at this period. But creative expression was everywhere, as it is in all, you know, human uh, society. Uh, but Americans began to see themselves as preferring the useful to the beautiful. And there were many people in the 19th century, uh, nonetheless, who were writing about how to become a truly great nation, we had to be great in all ways. Yeah. Not just in terms of, um, you know, the uh, um, being able to produce, um, you know, not, not just in a commercial way, but we had to be great in the arts as well. Well, yeah. If America been, was going to be exceptional, it has to be exceptional in everything. In everything. Yeah, so you know the story. I mean, everybody does. You know, that that's kind of the you know, the uh, core of a lot of American thinking. And so um, this argument was revitalized during that period uh, and came out very strongly. And you see it in the, the legislation, you know, that in order to be a great nation, then, you know, we, uh, and I, I can't quote it exactly, but in order to be a great nation, we have to be great in all ways, including uh, in the arts and sciences that was included in there. But for, in terms of the National Endowment of the Arts, it was about developing American art and becoming as great as every other nation in that way. So those two stories were really compelling at that time. And many people feel that contributed, they contributed significantly to passing the legislation. And, and it, it's interesting because that, I think, is, is a moment where uh, the two narratives uh, run together or at least um, can find uh, compromise uh, with each other. Whereas um, I, I think your, your sort of fictional example is one where the different narratives uh, perhaps conflict a bit more. Um, and, and I'm interested in what brought you to, uh, to the idea that you might bring um, fiction to have the same sort of status uh, sure. as, as well, the empirical sort of factual examples. Yeah. Um, well, we don't differentiate between fictional and non-fictional narrative per se in this book because mm. a narrative is a narrative and, and uh, um, you know, they have, uh, you know, the same attributes. Um, now, narrative isn't just one thing. Um, you know, it covers a range of many kinds of ways of doing narrative, but uh, it's kind of senseless to differentiate between fictional and non-fictional. And, of course, much that we might take as non-fiction is, in a sense, fiction because of the way it's framed. So, I mean, we're all aware that, you know, what we hear on the news isn't, you know, 100%, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, true, right? Yeah, and it's subject uh, to editorial control and um, it's influenced by the values of, of the, the news station and, um, you know, it might be influenced by uh, advertising or whether it's um, government-funded or th there's lots of different kind of ways of shaping and framing the, uh, the news. Right, and then there are things that are just out-and-out -out fiction that people take to be fact. We, we tell a story about... Um, uh, hippie protesters, uh, you know, meeting um, soldiers coming off the plane uh, after the Vietnam War, and that incident just never happened, and yet many people take it to be absolute truth. So that's a fiction that has influenced policies and certainly policy attitudes. Um, so um, um, I just happen to um, be a fan of... Um, the Mouse That Roared, which is the fictional story that we tell. And when you know a little bit about the background of how that uh, novels, uh, series of novels came about, there's certainly some policy issues in there. The, the author, apparently, Leonard Wiberly, uh, uh, had heard about reparations being paid to Japan, and he sort of flippantly said, you know, if uh, if Ireland, you know, went to war with the United States, it could, you know, lose the war and then get reparations and it would solve its financial problems, right? And uh, 
so he decided to put that into a novel um, and uh, came up with the Duchy of Grand Fenwick, mm. uh, the very, you know, a fictional a little uh, country, but this country ends up going to war with the United States and wins the war because um, they go to New York and they have archers and, you know, we weren't prepared for that apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and they win, uh, and you know a, a bunch of other hijinks ensue. But um, sort of in the background of the book is the fact that the duchy um, produces wine that's known all over the world, and there's a fight between the dilutionists and the anti-dilutionists um, because the the um, uh, the harvest differs in different years, and so they don't always have enough to sell. The dilutionists say, well, let's just dilute the wine in the years of bad harvest so that we can continue to sell as much. And, you know, so I thought, well, okay, that kind of reminded me of France and Italy, you know, wine issues. And, um, um, they, you know, how one might want to protect your culture and, uh, you know, viniculture in this case, but it's part of your identity. Uh, and then that just kind of led to thinking, well, why can't we use this story to illustrate some points? Um, so, so when we talked about, there's a little passage that I actually wrote about artists uh, in a small country. That doesn't occur in the novel. Uh, we do say, you know, apologies to the author for creating this, mm. but we just wanted to indicate that one could read into a fictional story things that are happening in the real world and make connections. And, of course, people do this all the time. Uh, we, we come up with another example um, from a, a cartoon a series called Fractured Fairy Tales that was very popular in the United States when I was, um, when I was young. And so we use that to illustrate how uh, this particular situation, um, it has to do with the union of witches, and the witches have run out of people to put spells on. Uh, and so, again, hijinks ensue, uh, but we used that to illustrate how there are uh, real situations that are very similar uh, to, to this. Uh, I compared it, uh, in, in the case of the witches, to the lowering... Um, uh, or they decrease in, um, in population of young people in many parts of the world. And so teachers aren't finding enough, there aren't enough children in classrooms to hire teachers in some places. Um, uh, and so, you know, here you have the fictional situation, somewhat similar to a real situation and would require, you know, some kind of policy solution. Yeah. And, and I think, um, uh, and, and I might sort of um, just ask you one, one more question on, um, uh, about the book. I, I think this um, leads in um, or, or sort of comes full circle to the the other example around the, the Hopi of, of Arizona. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I found really interesting was at the start of the book, you mentioned that the final edits were done actually in Arizona um, at uh, an experimental urban arcology. So I wonder if you could um, sort of conclude our discussion just by saying a bit about um, the kind of the final editing of the book and this, um, this, this Arizona uh, context you're in. Well, I, I was in Arizona at Northern Arizona University before coming to Colorado. This was actually my first year at Colorado University. Um, I'm teaching in a, a new program in arts leadership and administration. Um, when I was in Arizona, I, uh, I was fortunate to get a grant um, to look at sustainable entrepreneurship. And when I had first saw the, the, you know, the call for a proposal, um, since I don't do entrepreneurship per se and I don't do environmental sustainability, but I really wanted a grant for my research, um, I had to <laughs> construe what I did in these terms. And it was, it was fortunate because, uh, and maybe this is the way that I, I work, uh, that I, I look for opportunities that would somehow match with things that are just kind of bubbling in my brain. Um, 
And it led to thinking about how um, sustainability, entrepreneurship, and culture come together. Now, it's not a radically new idea per se, because there are people who are look, looking at cultural sustainability. Um, but specifically, um, what I wanted to do was um, to see how you could, rather than taking you know, our typical neoliberal kind of capitalist uh, point of view in entrepreneurship where we go in and teach people, you know, how to be capitalists, um, which often disrupts their culture. Mm -hmm. I wanted to think about how could you design an entrepreneurial program that would sustain, you know, the, the sustain the indigenous culture. And so, um, Got a, I had a partner on this one, uh, this uh, grant, uh, and uh, we started looking for projects where we might be able to t test our ideas. And actually, somebody from the Hopi tribe came to us and asked us to work with them um, a tourism policy because um, they needed to update it. And so it became the ideal partnership to do that. But in the process... I had to very quickly learn a whole lot about the Hopi people. Now, I've lived in the Southwest uh, United States for most of my life, and so I'm, you know, I'm aware of uh, the, you know, the indigenous people who live here. And throughout my school life, you know, I've learned about them, but I had never had this intense exposure. And what struck me about um, the way that they approach their culture was well they are they were traditionally oral not written culture and that story uh and here i don't want to say whether it's fictional or non-fictional because mm. stories can be non-fiction as well but the, they the approach to their culture is through story and so what their um what an outsider might call myths about their origins and their you know their religious beliefs um, have a strong influence on their everyday life. Uh, and so often the story uh, of their people is much more important than whatever outsiders might call reality. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I, and again, it, it sort of it encapsulates, I think, many of the, the themes in the book about uh, the relationships between different cultures, the importance of stories as both kind of um, descriptions, but also analytical tools um, as well, I think, which is something that runs um, throughout the book. Um, j just as a way of sort of concluding, um, the book was published, uh, where was it? Was it last year? Um, uh -huh. And I guess you're in that kind of round of, you know, people asking you to speak about the book and, you know, maybe giving talks about it, promoting it, that kind of thing. But um, are you working on any of the sort of future projects? Um, are you going to do something that maybe develops the book or, or are you going to go in a, a sort of a, a different direction entirely? Uh, well, a lot that went into the book are things that I had been thinking about anyway. And so it's easy to, to pull some of them out and, and just develop them further. Um, I, I do want to continue to find applications for narrative framework. Mm. Uh, and so at the very least, I've, I've proposed a, a paper that I'll uh, hopefully will be accepted <coughs> at a conference where I look at some additional examples. Um, you know, anybody who, who reads this book, um, they might find it challenging at the beginning. Our idea was more to introduce these ideas and say, look, here's a different way of going. And uh, I think what's needed is to find more concrete applications um, so people who are interested in it can see how it might, you know, how they might work with it as, as researchers or analysts. Um, so that is definitely um, one thing I'm doing. The other area really has to do with something that I talked about earlier, um, uh, American attitudes about the arts. Mm. And I think that the way that Americans and the rest of the world look at Americans um, through the lens of their attitudes about the arts has, a, has fueled a lot of the problems with, let's say, anti-Americanism, 
uh, anti-Americanism throughout history, not just 20th and 21st century anti-Americanism, and also how Americans approach the rest of the world. I think there are, there are myriad, uh, you know, policy uh, and uh, political issues that that come up. So what I want to do is, or what I am doing, is looking at. Um, periodicals from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century to see what Americans were writing about the arts for themselves, you know, and for others to read. Uh, and the picture that I find is very different than what we typically suppose, um, uh, especially um, people in arts policy. We take de Tocqueville to be the definitive, you know, authority on what Americans were thinking uh, or not thinking uh, about the arts in that one phrase that I mentioned mm. earlier. Yeah. And, and the, the real picture is so different. Um, and just, just quickly to give you a snippet of it, we often blame, you know, the Puritans, you know, the Puritans uh, disdain the arts and, you know, for religious reasons and therefore Americans ever after, you know, have the same attitude. Um, but, uh, as, as I mentioned, I live in the Southwest and no Puritans around here and, uh, and, you know, and uh, quite a bit of the United States, uh, w you know, was part of Mexico for a while. And so we can't say that in the 21st century we have, you know, we, we're still following t a Puritan heritage. Um, and it's dubious that they ever had wide influence. Um, and then, um, I think uh, Tocqueville and many other chroniclers of the period from uh, other countries, you know, came with a rather biased view and seemed to have been more concerned about American democracy and the threats of democratic institutions to aristocratic institutions, um, more so than they were concerned about the arts, but they seemed to have framed it within talking about American attitudes about the arts or American artistic abilities. Uh, so I, I want to just kind of pull that all apart and, and see, you know, where I get with that. So that's, that's my big uh, next project. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting and a very good luck with, uh, with kind of bringing that, uh, that to fruition. You've been listening to New Books in Critical Theory with your host, Dave O'Brien. This time we've been thinking about narrative, identity and the map of cultural policy once Upon a Time in a Globalized World by Constance Devereaux from Colorado State University and Martin Griffin from the University of Tennessee. Thanks for listening. See you next time.